This morning we're going to be in Genesis 3, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And, Adam, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God had made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, this message title is Everything is Broken. Welcome to Grace City. <laughs> so last night when I sat down to kind of, I have this routine of, of printing this out, this outline, and then reviewing it kind of last thing before I go to bed on Saturday night and reviewing it first thing when I get up Sunday morning. And I just sat down last night, kids are all in bed, and uh, went to review this. And our littlest one came down the stairs and I could hear him coming, I could hear crying. And I got up from my desk and he's standing there kind of like half dressed and shaking and crying. And so I just scooped him up, what's wrong? And he said, I had a nightmare. If you have little boys, like very often their nightmares are tied to like 
somewhere they went on Roblox, like a certain room or something, and they saw something that scared them, or they're watching something on YouTube TV that's like, dude, perfect, and they wander like one step further to something else, and they see something scary, and it's related to their dreams. And so didn't ask him what his nightmare was about. Um, I just went over, like laid down on the couch with him, like his chest was up against my chest, and I just feel his heart like beating like crazy. And I said, I love being your dad. And he said, I love being your son. I share that because when, when, we, when we talk about hard things, we're talking, this is a very short series on sex, sexuality, and relationships. Um, and some of you may have the idea that not just the church, but even God, as you come to him with your nightmare, that maybe you've wandered something, you know, somewhere further than you had anticipated. You saw something, you experienced something, and now it's become a part of your story. And whether that nightmare is shame and guilt, whether that nightmare is like you have been exploited or hurt somehow, the heart of the Father and the heart of the church is not like more shame on you. How could you? But is like, come back to me. Like a child knowing like, even if I've done something wrong, but it share, showed up in a scary way, in a big way with consequence, I know the heart of the Father to come and, you know, it's not just like he loves me, it's like I love him too and, and fundamentally trust his heart. So as we look at this this morning, part two of this, that everything is broken, that we fundamentally come to the word of God trusting the heart of our Father that we can bring our mess. Some of you are in the middle of a mess right now. You have been in the past. You can bring all that to him and he'll still say, I love being your father, okay? So if you, were, if you missed last week or even if you were here, I wanna just really quickly review. We started in Genesis 1 and 2, the only two chapters of the Bible that are written about this time period really before sin entered the picture, before things were broken, before we had what theologians call the fall and then the curse on kind of everything. So what we were looking at last week, like directly related to these topics that relate sex, sexuality, and relationships is we're trying to go back to the beginning and say, if God is the creator of these things, the designer of, his, of these things, what was his original perfect design before we made it really confusing with sin? And I want to just review these with you. We saw like kind of these principles. Number one, God created humans in his image as male and female. Males and females are ontologically equal. In other words, they have equal worth and dignity before God, yet they are not identical or interchangeable. God created male and female at different times out of a different substance and assigned them both unique and overlapping roles and responsibilities. And then I kind of closed last week by pointing out that, that sex is God's invention. So whatever you make of it, this is not something we just discovered. God created it. Therefore, it has an intent and it has a purpose. It has a context. And we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 and in Matthew 19, as Jesus quotes that, that the context for sex is a lifelong covenantal one flesh union of a man and woman. And the purpose of sex, we could say, is threefold. It may be more than this, but it's not less than this. God designed sex for pleasure. Like, he made it a delight. He meant to do that. 
He also made it for reproduction so we could fulfill the, the cultural mandate of like being fruitful and multiplying and building families. And he also made it incredibly for portraying the love across difference that Christ has for his bride, the church. And even a broken marriage portrays something of that amazing, unconditional love of Jesus. So what this means, this was kind of our conclusion last week, just speaking positively. Remember last week, we didn't say, we didn't say God was against anything last week. We just said, this is what God is for. He's for this and this and this. God is for these wonderful things. God is for being chaste in our singleness unless or until we are called to be faithful in a one flesh marriage. Now, until recently, all Christians across all cultures and time periods believed what I just said. And they believed it because these things are explicitly stated in the Bible. Believing these truths does not make you homophobic. It doesn't make you misogynist. It doesn't make you closed-minded. It doesn't make you a bigot. But in 21st century America, it does make you countercultural, which kind of had me thinking this week a couple of key questions. First of all, I was thinking, why is it that almost no one seems to believe this stuff anymore? Is it because people really dug into scriptures and exegeted those words and drew so near to the heart of God that they saw things that no Christians before them ever saw? Or are there other reasons maybe related to shame or even anger over how you have either seen the church or other Christians treat people who are like sexual outliers and that frustrates you that there seems to be an attitude of contempt or judgment or self-righteousness and you're like, I don't side with that kind of self-righteousness? Does it have something to do with immense cultural pressures that you're experiencing every single day? That you hear a certain ideology embodied every single day? that some people feel a need to read that back into Scripture, even if it's not there? Or I think a very practical reason maybe some of us are coming to different conclusions than believers before us is because you may even feel like, I tried what I believed was God's way, and it just hasn't worked out for me the way that I thought it would. It, it hasn't been good for me. Um, it, it just hasn't worked out the way I've seen it work out even for friends. And so that raises another key question, which is why is everything so broken when it comes to sex, sexuality, and relationships? If, as we saw last week, God designed these things, he gave us principles and boundaries that set us up for companionship and delight and joy and fulfillment, all while glorifying him and worshiping him. Again, these are not two different things of like, you can have fun in a sexual relationship with your spouse, or you can honor God. God's like, you can do both simultaneously. That's the way I designed it. So why is there so much breaking up and frustration and unfulfilled desire and emptiness and deep pain around these topics? And the answer is we turn from Genesis 1 and 2 that we looked at last week to Genesis 3, which Maddie read this morning, which shows us at a very high level, both what went wrong and why it went wrong. And I want to repeat something I said last week, that what we encounter here in the early chapters of Genesis is deliberately paradigmatic. And what I mean is, we're not just reading things that happened to Adam and Eve or things that God did way back there. 
we're reading, we're being introduced to patterns and themes that we're going to see over and over again, not only in scripture, but also in human history and in church history. And one of those patterns or themes is what I'm going to unpack for you this morning. And that is that temptation very often produces sin, which leads to a fallout or consequences. Okay, so your first point is the anatomy of temptation. And I'm just share a couple quick things of like what we see in this text that went wrong. How did Adam and Eve get from the point of being made like God in his image, having perfect fellowship with him, and then all of a sudden they've broken everything? And I'm going to say these as like a, a we do these things because you will, you will hear yourself in a number of, maybe not all of these things, but you can relate to what I'm about to share, okay? So the first thing about the anatomy of temptation is we stop celebrating the million gifts God has given, and we start obsessing over the one thing he's withheld. Okay, Adam and Eve in the garden, perfect paradise. And, and literally they had one command, one prohibition. And Satan's going to even tempt her and be like, oh, can you not eat of any of these trees? And she was well over there. Oh, no, 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 we can, we can eat of all of these other trees, but there's this one tree. And then she starts thinking like, yeah, why is it that I can't eat of that tree? And instead of focusing on the literally millions of things that God had given that were good, that were beautiful, that were healthy, that lent themselves to flourishing, she starts getting stuck on the one thing. And you'll see this show up in your own thinking. If you have children, you'll see it show up in, your, in their thinking of like, why don't you notice all the other good things that we're doing? You just, you're stuck on the one thing you don't have or the one thing we're not letting you have right now. Then secondly, we listen to the voices that confirm our bias toward disobedience. So Eve's already thinking about the tree. Eve shouldn't have given two seconds to the serpent. I mean, it was as simple as God said no, so that settles it. But she's drawn to the voice of Satan because his questions, which are really statements are confirming something she had already wondered. Why not? Like, what's so bad about the one fruit? And do you ever find yourself doing this? You're already kind of leaning towards something, and then all the voices that are around you, and many of them are like, no, 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 don't. And there's this one voice that's like, go ahead, it's good. And you're like, yep, that confirms it's good. And by the way, like you, you can read even Christian theologians and pastors and whole churches and denominations that around all this stuff, they'll be like, yep, go ahead. It's good. It's fine. Like, do what you want. God wants you to be happy. And we are further giving ourselves over to temptation when we listen to those voices that are confirming our bias toward disobedience. Thirdly, we let ourselves doubt God's goodness. And this is what Eve is doing in the text. As Satan says to her, as the serpent says to her, God's afraid that if you eat it, that your eyes will be opened. You'll be able to discern right and wrong for yourself. You'll be wise. God doesn't want you to be wise. And so he's, and here's the seed that he's planting. God's withholding something good from you. Like, therefore, God is not as good as he could be. So then fourthly, we, we look with longing at the forbidden thing. So Eve looks, and then, he and then she takes a second look. And you all know the difference between those two looks. The first look is like you saw something that you couldn't help seeing. The second is you intentionally looked back with a different kind of look. So Eve is now lingering. She's deciding. 
you know, you, you start thinking, like, I wonder what that thing would be like, what that experience would be like. So her desire makes her look, but then the look fuels and feeds more desire. So then five, we rationalize that the forbidden thing is actually good. And this is what she's doing. She's, now she's agreeing with the serpent. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is God withholding this thing from me? And she's like, not only does it look amazing, but it's actually good for food. And I'm hungry. And the serpent has pointed out, like, this fruit will make me wise. And God is wise. And so certainly God would want me to be wise. Like, what's so bad about discernment? How could this possibly be a bad thing? And we do this today with, like, well, God is love. And love is good. And companionship is good. So surely God wants me to be happy. So what God has called bad or off limits, we actually start calling good because we're agreeing with voices that say the opposite of God. And this is all still at the temptation stage. But temptation when it's fostered, when it's coddled, gives birth to sin. And that's the second point, the essence of sin. And just look at what the text says about the essence of sin. I'll say it a number of different ways so you can see it. Number one, sin is the failure to let God be God. And that's kind of the bottom line here. Even Adam know God is eternally, infinitely wise and sovereign and good But when we sin, we're saying, I know better than God. I should be sovereign here. Like, I want to be in control, and I disagree with him that this is bad. Okay, you ever find yourself asking questions like, especially around this this area, like, what's so bad about? And then we, with very limited wisdom, very limited experience, actually find ourselves questioning God. And we're like, I don't, I don't see what's so bad about that. What's so harmful about that? So sin at its essence is just the failure to let God be uniquely God. Secondly, sin is the failure to trust God's design and boundaries. We start thinking my freelance design is better. Coloring outside the lines are better. And we hear things like this, like, yeah, we can read boundaries in Scripture around sex, gender, sexuality, relationships, what we do with them, how far is too far. But, but we hear, but those, those boundaries are really just arbitrary. They are, they're controlling. They're, they're mean-spirited. They're, they're just plain absurd. And we start telling ourselves this lie, like, I'll only ever be happy or content or free if I paint outside the lines. So sin is the failure to trust God's design and boundaries. Thirdly, sin is the failure to submit our autonomy to God's authority. God says, you were made for relationship with me and companionship with someone else. Our culture says we exist to worship autonomy. Just the freedom to do me, my identity, my independence. We start trying to find our identity, our meaning, our purpose without reference to God, but just with reference to self. Like what what would make me feel good? How do I instinctively think or feel about some of these topics? So sin is the failure to ground your ideas of right and wrong in the person and word of God. Okay, why did God forbid the tree, the fruit of that one tree? And I used to think, well, it was kind of arbitrary. God just said it, and that's fine. And it would have been fine. 
God is God, and if he just made something up and is like, I'm just going to ask you to trust me that I'm God and don't touch that one tree, but have at it with anything else. But no, that tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the point is, like, as creatures who are created, we were meant to trust God as Father, as Lord, as friend, that when he says, this is right and this is wrong, we're like, okay, you're God and I trust you. I submit to your ideas of right and wrong. The thing that's wrong about this sin, the thing that's wrong about taking this tree is it's, I want to determine right and wrong for myself. I want to be able to determine right and wrong without reference to what God says. And by the way, make no mistake, like some of the, some of the most radical ideologies around sex and gender and sexuality that we experience in our culture today are a form of fundamentalism, like a very crazy reverse fundamentalism, because they have a whole list of rules of this is right and this is wrong. This is good and beautiful and healthy and wholesome. And if you don't get on board, you are evil and destructive. And they've got a whole list of words for you. And we can agree with that standard or we can come back to God's standard. But what I'm saying is here in this text, one of the essences of sin is simply a failure to ground the ideas of right and wrong in the person and word of God. We elevate feelings over faith in what God has revealed. And we think authenticity means following my feelings of what is right and wrong. Number five, sin is the failure to love God more than anything else or everything else. And Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And it's just a reality. We never break any of the other 10 commandments without first breaking this one. It's like in that moment, under those pressures, giving into those desires, we love something or someone. We treasure someone or something more than we treasure God. What are some of those things? Maybe it's just pleasure, like instant gratification, like in, instead of throwing away your life for 15 minutes, God kind of calls you to throw away 15 minutes for your life. But we're like, I need that pleasure and that I love that thing. I'm pursuing that thing right now. Or maybe it's just like, I just want in general, I want autonomy. I want control. I want independence. I want to own my own identity and have the ability to kind of create and forge my own identity, my own path, my own purpose. And that becomes a God to some people. How about this one that feels right because God created us for this, which is companionship, affirmation, acceptance. And sometimes in a moment we, we give in to this, this becomes more like I need this acceptance with this person or this group or this tribe more than I need to just honor God. Okay, so that's the essence of sin. And now let's look at the extent of the fallout. Consequences that we no longer could control once the sin was chosen. First of all, you see shame. You see hiding. Verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. See, there's this immediate self-consciousness, an embarrassment, a shame, a hiding. And we see that replicated over and over and over. If you're experiencing shame about a part of your past or part of your history, something that was done to you, 
that was beyond your control. All I'm saying is that that's one of the fallouts of the sin that either someone did to you or something that you participated in. Secondly, we see confusion and we see fear, verses 9 and 10. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Okay, confusion, fear. We, we were not made to cower in the bushes hiding behind fig leaves. But how many times do we figuratively do that with our lives where something that was very simple and the kind of fear of the Lord that we were made to enjoy, which is like reverence and awe, we were not made to cower before God with like, uh, do you like my fig leaves, God? Like, am I covering enough? I'm sh- sh-. We were not made for that. And when we feel that of like a hiding or a confusion about who is God and what does he really want, it's a fallout from sin. Third, we see blame shifting. Verses 11 through 13. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's a simple yes or no answer, guys. Did you eat it? Yes. But, but notice what enters the moment sin enters the picture is blame shifting. And the, the woman is literally the first one that ever said, the devil made me do it. The, the serpent, it's the serpent's fault. Adam is worse because he says, not only is it Eve's fault, she gave me the fruit. But notice this, notice this, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Well, that's packed. Uh, so God, I was good, me and the animals. Um, then, then you brought this problem into my life. And how do we still do that of like, God, it's, it's kind of your fault for, for making me this way or putting this temptation in my path. It's, it's really your fault. But we see that all throughout, that, that one of the huge fallouts, and we see this in our marriages, we see this in our friendships, is just a shifting of blame. No one takes personal responsibility anymore. It's like, you know what? I was wrong. I hurt you in these ways. Will you please forgive me? And we can move forward in integrity and forgiveness. But no, there's this blame shifting. Then we see number four, exploitation, conflict, control. Because here begins a series of curses. And we'll focus first on the woman, verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And I want you to just notice here how the woman's unique calling is cursed. She was made to help the man in complementary companionship and friendship and to bear children, and now both of those things are marred with pain. Like, you will still have children, and this is uniquely what the woman can do. But that will be marked with pain. But then zoom in on this phrase, your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And I'll share with you, um, we're not exactly sure what that means. There are three main schools of thought, and they're not necessarily independent of one another, but have kind of like overlapping meanings. So some people will say, um, focusing on the for that preposition. Your desire shall be for your husband. Some people will interpret that your desire will be contrary to your husband. Like the idea of, you know, you'll have different opinions. You'll have different preferences. You'll have different priorities. 
you'll obviously bring a different history to the relationship. You'll want a different identity. You'll have different needs. And the idea here is, like, you'll be two different people with two different opinions, preferences, priorities, all that, and you'll fight about it, and he will domineer you. The second interpretation is interpreting for. Your desire will be for your husband as in toward. And this one sounds like this. You will pursue an identity. You will pursue safety in a relationship with a husband. And he's going to let you down by domineering you. So a little bit healthier perspective. I know a number of women theologians I highly respect that, that choose this position based on how this preposition is generally interpreted in Scripture. It's just like your, your desire is not malicious. It's not contrary to. It's just like I desire a relationship with a husband, and it just did not fulfill. Like, it, it didn't complete me. He wasn't the perfect fit. That Just like everything that was missing in my life was just perfectly him and nothing more and nothing less. And he actually kind of was domineering. And then there's a third view that focuses on the word desire instead of the preposition. What you'll notice is in the very next chapter, there's a parallel verse that talks about both desire and ruling. It's chapter four, verse seven, if you want to look at this later. And there, desire is not like, it's not a positive desire or longing. The word there is clearly like it will desire, and it's talking about sin. God is warning, like sin desires to master you, to control you, to manipulate you, to exploit you. And so desire has a very negative meaning. And so many commentators will take the word desire, same word in 316, bring it back here and say, your desire will be to master, to manipulate, to exploit, to control your husband. And simply because he's bigger and stronger than you, he's still going to dominate you. Okay. Now, I think touches of each of those three things is true, those three interpretations. I'll just say whatever the interpretation, the correct one, um, notice some common themes. The common themes are God designed the woman to be a blessing and to receive a blessing in like beautiful companionship with her husband. But there's going to be brokenness and hurt instead. Husbands and wives will desire things of one another that they're not willing or able to give. That's a common thread. Okay? There will be conflict. There will be attempts to use, to exploit, to control one another. Marriage won't complete you. We're broken. The fifth fallout, pain, toil, futility, shifting our focus to the man, verses 17 and 18. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And I want you to note now how the man's unique role and dominion are impacted by the fall. He was already a worker, Genesis 1 and 2. Work is good. Work is not part of the curse. But now that work becomes painfully hard, exhausting, frustrating, futile. And then the ultimate culmination of this fallout, number 6, is death. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. And folks, we need to hear this, that what is the ultimate consequence of stepping outside 
of God's good and beautiful and perfect design and just say, I'm going to write my own story, my own identity, it's death. Sin leads to death no matter how harmless or how attractive that sin seems. She ate a piece of fruit. He ate a piece of fruit, a beautiful piece of fruit, a healthy piece of fruit by many measures of health, death. So no matter how we've rationalized things in our own mind, the Bible says you, you paint outside the lines and the natural consequence is ultimately death. Now, if you're listening to all this and you're like, wait, I thought this was supposed to be a message about sex, sexuality, relationships. You're barely talking about those topics. And I would agree because what I'm trying to do right now is give you tools to think biblically about any topic, including sex, sexuality, and relationships. These things are not inherently bad. They're not inherently dirty. They're not inherently taboo. We talked about that last week. These things are inherently good and beautiful and delightful. Okay? The church should be saying that, but they are broken because as the title of the message says, everything is broken. Now, this is the fulcrum in the message, and I want to flip it, and I want to start with the ending and work our way back. We live after the fall. That's obvious. Chronologically, Genesis 3 was thousands and thousands of years ago. But that's why. If you're like, why is something that should be good and beautiful and joyful? It's love for crying out loud. Why is it so hard? Well, Genesis 3 told us the answer. Why does none of this really function as easily, as naturally as it should, and just be good and healthy and beautiful and honor God? And I think most of you would agree with me that kind of like everywhere we look in Western progressive culture, there's stuff broken about sex, sexuality, and relationships. Okay? The, the selfish instant gratification of hookup culture where it used to be like, at least it used to be like, let's date for a while and see if we're compatible and then have sex and then get married, which is still not biblical. But now it's like, let's start with sex. No commitment, no love. It's just take, take, take. It's exploitive. It's superficial. Everywhere we look, there's fornication, there's adultery, there's divorce. There's a growing list of letters under the LGBTQ plus umbrella, which, by the way, some of those letters are self-contradictory. And people that embrace the ideology of a particular letter over the whole thing hate other people that embrace a different letter because it means something exactly opposite and contradictory to what they believe. What about the rapid rise of gender dysphoria and transgenderism, especially among preteen girls that have Instagram accounts? It's messed up. Just shame, humiliation, guilt, frustration, fear, pain. And I'll throw in here another fallout of the fall is if, if you have experienced or you've seen or you at least know that this is a thing of like the, the arrogant, self-righteous, just judgmental, angry, hypocritical judgment of Christians of like, they are the bad people. The sins I do are no big deal. That stuff is vile. That, those, those very attitudes are not embracing the boundaries and principles of the heart of God. They're 
more fallout. They're more sin against broken people. Okay, so that's not what we're calling ourselves to. Let's go back and I, w- I want to reiterate again. God's design was for joy, satisfaction, delight, and a growing family, all to the glory of Father, Son, and Spirit. What happened is we thought we would have a greater joy, a greater satisfaction, a greater delight doing things our own way. We're like, that's crazy. Paint within the lines, boring. I'll do this. And it just made a mess of everything. Now back up one step earlier to sin. Going back to Genesis 3, are any of us guilty of any of these things when it comes to sex, sexuality, and relationships? Same questions I asked earlier. Do we ever fail to let God be God? Do we ever fail to trust God's design and boundaries? Do we ever fail to submit our autonomy to God's authority? Do we ever fail to ground our ideas of right and wrong in the person and word of God? And do we ever fail to love God more than everything else? And friends, these are the kinds of questions we should be asking. Not, what are my feelings? What are my desires? Because the Bible says all of us all the time need to be submitting our feelings and desires to the leadership of God's word. Because I'll let you in on a little clue. Sex is really sneaky. Because when we sin in these areas, it doesn't usually feel gross or vile. It doesn't feel like an abomination, to use a biblical word. It often feels amazing, alluring, attractive. It feels natural. It doesn't feel like you're deciding against your body and against your mind and against this psychological impulse. It feels, it it just feels right. And it feels like love and you're right, in a sense. It's natural and alluring and attractive, and it feels good because, as we saw last week, God designed it to feel good, okay? So the, the right question is not, does this feel good? The right question is, is this good? Paul David Tripp says it like this, the way you express your sexuality will either recognize God's existence and honor him or deny his existence and rebel against his authority. If the latter, then sex will reveal that you think you have liberty to do what you do not have, rights you have never been given, and authority that only ever belongs to the creator. Now, furthermore, as I mentioned last week, it's fashionable in our day and age, even in the church, for people to claim Jesus, that's Old Testament, okay? You're in Genesis 3. Are you gonna show me like Leviticus um, and people will say Jesus gave additional rights, additional liberties, liberties sexually that the Old Testament never gave us. But that, like, I love you, but that simply doesn't square with what Jesus actually said. It's more accurate to say he explicitly reaffirmed the original Genesis design in Matthew 19. And he reaffirmed that anything beyond that was sin in Matthew 15. And I'm not asking you to take my word for it. You can turn with me to Matthew 15. What's going on here is that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and others are coming to him and saying, like, your disciples have been defiled by what they put in their mouth. And Jesus starts teaching, okay? And he says, no, no, no. 
no one is defiled by what you put in your mouth because it, it goes in your mouth, it's digested to your stomach, and then it's expelled, okay? That doesn't defile you. And he says, what does defile you is what comes out of your mouth and what comes out of your heart. And then he says this in Matthew 15, 19 and 20. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Okay, right in the middle of that list, I'll point out two words. Adultery is the word moikea, which is exactly what you think it is. It's sex with somebody else's spouse. And then the word sexual immorality is the word pornea, which there are certain words today, obviously pornography, that are based on this root word. But what everyone understood when Jesus said this is this is a catch-all word. It's like a junk drawer word for every kind of sexual relationship outside of the context of marriage. So what every single person would have understood when Jesus said this is like porneia is fornication. It's like sex before marriage, homosexuality, transgenderism, um, bisexuality, polyamory. It's like, well, but we agreed like that we have an open relationship. And Jesus is like, but that's not the way it was from the beginning. So what is Jesus saying when he says, out of the heart come things like adultery and sexual immorality that defile you, okay? I want you to imagine I've invited you for dinner, as we often do. If we remember, we say, hey, any allergies to be careful with? And you say, yes, crustaceans. I'm deadly, deadly allergic of crustaceans. And you, you show up, and as appetizers, I have crab dip and shrimp skewers sitting right next to steak and lobster. And you're like, are you trying to kill me? And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're like, you, you serious right now? Like, like yeah, you, you, you never said anything. You never said anything about crab or shrimp or lobster. And I know you love the ocean. I've seen, I've seen pictures of you vacationing at the ocean. So I was like, if you love the ocean, obviously you love everything taken from the ocean. And this is exactly what our modern culture is doing with we're playing these cute and culturally relevant word games with what Jesus said and how he defined right and wrong. What Jesus did do, family, is he took us back to Genesis 1 and 2 and again said, this is good and beautiful and delightful. I have designed it for your pleasure and for my glory. It's holy, but it's a lot of fun at the same time. Everything contrary to or beyond that is sin and defiles and leads to death. And my pastoral encouragement is let's, like as a congregation, as families, as singles, let's not see how close we can get to sin or how far we can go and still just kind of like stop right before we sin. Let's help each other cut things off back at the level of temptation so we don't enter this pattern that's all through scripture of temptation when festered and fostered produces sin, which produces consequences that we can't control. So let me quickly close with two questions. One, in a culture gone sexually crazy, how do we not go there? And two, what if it's too late and we already have? Okay, as to the first question, in a culture gone sexually crazy, how do we not go there? This is why I showed you Genesis 3 and the anatomy of temptation, because we need to recognize things before it becomes sin. 
So as I did before, let me just repeat these questions and, and think like, do you have the integrity and the wisdom to see what's happening and take the way out that God gives you before it's like too far? So one, do we ever stop celebrating the million gifts God has given and start obsessing over the one thing he's withheld? Two, do we ever listen to voices that confirm our bias toward disobedience? Three, do we ever let ourselves doubt God's goodness? Four, do we ever look with longing at a forbidden thing? Five, do we ever rationalize the forbidden thing is actually good? Can I be clear to say it's not a sin to be tempted? It, it is not a sin to experience a strong desire for companionship in marriage or even experience sexual desire. It's not a sin to experience sexual desire. God created your sexual desire, but it is sin to desire to long for something that God has put off limits. In other words, if the behavior or the lifestyle itself is sinful, then to desire something sinful is sinful. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. If the outcome of what you want is sin, then to desire it is sin. That's not temptation. It's a sinful desire. So my point is simply be wise to temptation and flee. And let's help each other do that. If you're dating, help each other do that. If you're in a marriage, we'll talk more about this next week, but there are ways to love and serve one another, selflessly giving yourself for the marriage, for your family, if you have children together, that enable your spouse to experience significantly less temptation. I don't just mean sexual temptation. I just mean like conflict and frustration and the desire to control one another instead of the desire to serve one another. So let's be wise and flee temptation. And then this, finally, um, if you've already messed up or, or even now, if you don't see a way out of current attractions or desires or beliefs or behaviors, the church is not here to pile on guilt. The church is here to pile on hope the church is here to give you hope because way back in Genesis 3, look at this again. When Adam and Eve had no moral resolve to resist the serpent, God made a promise. You can't do it, but I will come and at great cost to myself. That serpent will bite the heel of my son, but my son will stomp on the serpent's head. And when you have no moral resolve in and of yourself to resist something or to change something, Here's the first gospel. The first good news is God saying, I'm going to send a savior who's going to crush the serpent's head for you. It's really good news. And when Adam and Eve found themselves hiding in the bushes, stitching together fig leaves, and they're like, well, look at me. I'm like, I'm naked. I'm so ashamed. I'm exposed. I'm embarrassed. Like, how could I for a few minutes of pleasure and a piece of fruit? This is so stupid. Like, what did I do? Did you notice those last verses that Maddie read? God is like, children, what are you, you've got to go from the garden. But what are you doing with these stupid fig leaves? And he killed an innocent animal. And he made them clothes, durable clothes to cover them. This is the first picture we have in the Bible of the word is atonement, a, a covering for our sin, where God is showing us you, you don't, and the church is not the place where you just have to run and cower and hide and be confused because you're like, but I messed up. And I've, I've had beautiful, amazing conversations with a number of you 
that like I delight that this is kind of the, the kind of church culture we're building because you will say like, hey, I've struggled with looking at things or I have gone too far with a person. Like I, I've done things that God told me not to do or I have certain attractions that I, I don't know what to do with, but is this a safe place to, to process and to understand what is God's will? And if I'm supposed to change, how do I change? And I'm not supposed to change. Like what, what do I make of these texts of scripture? And, and Ultimately, we're looking forward to this Savior who's like, I will lay down my life, not, not just to, to cover your shame and your guilt, but to eradicate it, to cleanse you from top to bottom. And both of those pictures, both the stomping of the serpent's head and the clothing with like actual clothes, point us to our hope and salvation where you and I have failed We are not to define our sin or redefine sin. We're not to grovel in guilt and shame. We're to turn to Jesus, the lawgiver and the lawkeeper, and trust him to wash it away. So yes, everything's broken, but yes, there is a Savior that is bigger than your brokenness and mine.